0: So women did not really have what we would call a voice at that time. And that's why I love creating fictional characters who I can give a voice to.
1: Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am happy to be joined by Ashley Sweeney, author of the novels Eliza Waite and Answer Creek.
0: Historical novelists must adhere to historical accuracy, whether that's uncomfortable or not, as long as it doesn't get in the way of a good story.
1: Ashley Sweeney is a Washington-based historical novelist who's long been enamored with underserved women's voices. She defines her stories as women's adventures set in the American West. Ashley is a seasoned journalist, teacher, and community activist. She served as a VISTA volunteer in the late 1970s and continues community service today as a member of the Soroptimist International, one of the largest women's advocacy organizations in the world. Her first novel, Eliza Waite, won the 2017 Nancy Pearl Book Award. Her newest novel, which tells the story of 19-year-old Ada Weeks as she travels the Oregon Trail with the ill-fated Donner Party, is titled Answer Creek. Well, I want to begin with, I guess, maybe what you might call your tagline. You say you write women's adventure stories set in the American West. I was wondering if you could tell me how you kind of jumped into or discovered that, that niche, and how you decided to write about that?
0: That's a great question, Colin. I'm a native New Yorker, and so stories of the West were always of great interest to me. Even as a little girl, I, I was a voracious reader. And I would peruse all of the stacks at my elementary school library. And there was a a biography series in the 60s, and I must have read every single one of them. But that's where I was first introduced to the story of Narcissa Whitman. And I would say that Narcissa Whitman became one of my earliest heroines. And that led me into a long interest in women's westward migration stories, of which there are very few when it comes down to it. Even as a college student at Wheaton College in Norton, Massachusetts, I studied American literature and American history, and I would go down rabbit holes for weeks at a time doing research on women's stories and reading women's diaries of the westward journey. So you could say that I've had a long love of of the genre. And when it came time to write my first novel, which took eight years by the way, he lies I focused on a fictional protagonist in the West. And the novel came out to great acclaim and won the prestigious Nancy Pearl Award. And I thought, I have a readership here. And there are so many stories to tell. So I came at it from a very long history of being interested in Western women. And now I feel like I can tell their stories, although I must mention that all of my protagonists are fictional and I place them within a historic context so that people are familiar with the time and the place. But it's a completely new character. I'd say a mosaic of many other Western women.
1: Well, that that's interesting, and I'd like to ask you more about that. But before I do, um, you struck my curiosity. Who Who is Narc- uh, Narcissa Whitman?
0: Oh, she traveled with her husband, Marcus Whitman. And if you reach far back into your American history, you might know that they started a uh, mission in Walla Walla, Washington, and they were eventually massacred by the tribe who they had come to help. And there's a shrine there in Walla Walla, Washington, which is in the very southeastern corner of Washington, and a lovely meditative spot there where they had their home uh, along the river and there's an interpretive center there now in a beautiful, beautiful surrounding.
1: Wow, well, I can see how that, that got you interested. So you, you say you make fictional characters set within history. Are they composites of people that you've researched or, or how exactly do you decide to do that?
0: Well, with any research for historical fiction, I am rooted in the premise that historical novelists must adhere to historical accuracy, whether that's uncomfortable or not, as long as it doesn't get in the way of a good story. Um, If I need to change an event, I always note that in the afterward. But there's a lot of uncomfortable information and subjects, even taboos that we uncover when we research for historical fiction, there's patriarchy and xenophobia and misogyny, domestic violence, racism. It's all there. And so in in researching and wanting to, as I say, adhere to historical accuracy, I can't pump out a novel in less than two years. It, it's impossible. If you're, if you're wanting to get the facts completely right, there are a lot of rabbit holes that you go down, and there are a lot of placeholders that you put in a manuscript to go back and check, and recheck, and you know, triple check. But what I have posted above my desk a wonderful quote from Francis Parkman, who was a 19th-century journalist, and he says, Faithfulness to the truth of history involves far more than research, however patient and scrupulous, into special facts. Such facts may be detailed with the most minute exactness, and yet the narrative taken as a whole may be unmeaning or untrue. The narrator must seek to imbue himself, or herself in this case, with the life and spirit of the time. He must study events in their bearings near and remote, in the character, habits, and manners of those who took part in them. He must himself be, as it were, a sharer in the actions he describes. So I have a method that I do that, Colin, and it's the role of daydreaming and how I do that is I come to my desk and I close my eyes and I invite characters into a scene and then I watch them interact. And then after maybe five or 10 minutes of that, then I get to my writing. So I don't actually direct their movements and their conversation, I watch them as if I'm watching a movie inside of my head, and then I bring that scene to a page. So all of that comes with underlining that I have to get it right. I have to get every single aspect of that right.
1: Well, that's fascinating. And that's, it's a great quote that you shared with us. And and I'm actually really glad as a historian, as a novelist, just to hear th- your integrity for the process. and
0: Right, Go well, ahead. beta readers, they are, they're always clamoring for more detail after, mm-hmm. you know, between a first and a second and a third draft. And so I wrote down a couple of questions that they've asked me over the years. And I just love it because a reader is so hungry for these details. You know, how cold was it? What clothing did she wear? How did they bathe? How did they do laundry? How did they combat filth and vermin and disease? Tell me about their diet. How did they procure it and how did they cook it? What were their ailments and how were they treated? How did they prevent pregnancy or endure childbirth? What were their funereal practices? Tell me about the tools and firearms. What kind of hooch did they drink? So those are the questions that I ask myself of of every character in in his or her time frame. And so in a way, between nine and one every morning and into the afternoon, I live in a different century, Colin. I live in the 19th century and I don't answer my phone. I don't go on social media, I don't check my emails, I mean, unless it's an emergency, I'm, I'm living in a completely different time, and then about one o'clock, I join the 21st century, and I, you know, get dressed and go about the rest of my day, so I, I live in two different worlds, and probably other historical novelists will tell you something similar. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think it just goes to show just how, how, how detailed historical fiction is and that you have to do the research about the historical events and people, but then you have to go further and try to understand how they lived too.
0: Right. And creating believable conversation without making it too florid in the in the sense of 19th century dialogue. It's it is a challenge and As a historical novelist, or as a historian also, if you get a fact wrong, your readers are going to tell you about it. And so it does hang very heavily over my head that I need to get it right. And I did hear from one reader from Eliza Waite, who said that I had a minor error in the novel. And she went on to tell me that she lived in Skagway, Alaska, and that I had had mule deer in Skagway, Alaska, but actually even though they're indigenous to southeastern Alaska, they do not come down into the town itself. And so now that's not saying that they didn't come down into the town in 1898, but I thanked the reader profusely for pointing that out to me. And I'm not, I'm human. I'm i am not infallible. So there could be a small error that slips by. But if that's the extent of it, I feel like I've done a really good job on the rest of the 343 pages of facts.
1: I would say so. So how, you know, you say you go through this whole process and you need at least two years and, and you go through beta readers. How do you actually decide? or feel comfortable when a book is ready to be published.
0: Oh, I don't think a book is ever ready to be published, Colin. I think that you're barking up a deadline and you need to adhere to the deadline. I have a long career as a journalist and so I know that I work well under a deadline and I would I would give myself an A on my work. I'd love it to be an A+, but in some ways I don't think I would ever be finished with a novel if I didn't have a deadline. To get it to the point of the deadline, however, I go through four drafts. I do do a first draft that I have two different beta readers read serially with me as I'm writing, so that they're asking all kinds of questions along the way as I'm writing. And then the second draft is probably my favorite because that's when I'm really fleshing it out with all of the historical accuracy. And then it goes out to a series of about 10 readers and I get that back. And the third draft is really hard work because that's when I'm analyzing everything, content, order dialogue, everything. And then I let it sit for about a month before I go through it the fourth time. And that's when I'm at the absolute micro level of word choice and sentence structure. And so it's definitely each one of those drafts is so important to the health of the novel. And when I get to the point where I feel like it's ready, then I submit it. Now, of course, once you submit it, then it's going to go through edits at the publisher and you're going to get it back again to do more edits. So you're never really 100 percent finished, but I'd like to say I I feel, you know, 98 percent comfortable by the time. I hit sure. a launch.
1: Well, I'm glad you, you know, gave us that process of yours. It really goes to show the value of your work. Um, you know, literature itself has value, but then to, to kind of see how much work goes into it I mean, uh, gives us all a lot more appreci- appreciation for the work of a novelist.
0: Well, it's a long, lonely process, and I, I over my life I have – actually evolved from being quite an extrovert to more of an introvert. And I think life can do that to you for a number of reasons. So I'm very comfortable at my desk and I'm very happy here. I'm grounded when I'm here and there's really no place I'd rather be. I mean, I love being with my family and I love being at the beach and I love being out on the boat and I love being with friends, but I I crave being back at my desk. And so I, I never have writer's block. If anyone ever asks me that question, I just don't understand that construct. And, this is where I feel like I have the most to give. I, we, we've all been given certain gifts in our lives, and I feel that I have to use this gift. And this is, I have the time now that I'm retired that I can be giving this my full attention.
1: I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the, the women in your books. I was, I, I noticed a statement where you say that women were bound to the decisions of others. And that, that really, that really struck me. Tell me about the the, the situation that the women during that time period were in and, and how you convey that throughout your books.
0: Well, in the 19th century and into the 20th century, actually, Women were slash are second-class citizens in many societies, and while they may not have been chattel, they were definitely bound to the decisions of their fathers, their brothers, their uncles, then their husbands, and... Lastly, their sons, if they were blessed with any. So women did not really have what we would call a voice at that time. And that's why I love creating fictional characters who I can give a voice to, and they can stand up against what I described before, patriarchy and racism and xenophobia and misogyny and violence, and speak from a place in the past that's still going to speak to a woman who's reading, or a man actually, reading the narratives today. I call them forgotten women, and they're intriguing, they're mystifying, But again, I feel like a mosaic artist. I'm taking bits and pieces from ordinary lives to conjure up characters who I hope are unique and extraordinary and can still still have a voice. There's a scene at the end of Answer Creek and without giving away too much of the ending, I have the protagonist reaching into the future to speak to a descendant in a dream, and I like to think that my ancestors, my foremothers and foregrandmothers, are really speaking to me in different ways. And I don't mean that I hear their voices, Colin. I just mean that there's a gravitas as a woman today to listen to what women in the past have endured and the strides that they've made to bring us to where we are today. I mean, it's really mind-boggling that women have just had the vote for a 100 years this year. 100 years, that's it. Mm -hmm. And so during the 19th century, women didn't even have a vote, let alone a say in anything that pertained to family life, except perhaps the rearing of their children.
1: Mm. Well, you talk about family history, And I I know most of your characters are probably first or second generation Americans. Um, You see names like Inga, uh, you know, people from Norway and and Scandinavia and in other areas. Tell me more about the immigrant experience in your books and also in your own family.
0: Well, I am of Irish descent. And my ancestors came over from County Monahan in the 1840s. They actually came through New Orleans up the Mississippi and settled in Holy Cross, Iowa, which is near Dubuque. So I come from poor farming stock, even though I was born in New York City and I lived a completely different life as a young woman. That's the story of my ancestors. And the women who peopled the American West were often immigrants, and they, they stuck to their own people. You read about German communities and Norwegian communities and Irish communities. They were bound together together by family and, and by faith, a lot of them. What was different about the westward diaspora in the 1840s to 1850s is people from different immigrant experiences were forced to travel together as they made their way toward a common destination with a communal common goal, which was a better life for themselves and their families in California or in Oregon. So there is a lot of dissent in Answer Creek because we have... Irish families, traveling with German families, traveling with English families, traveling with Appalachian families, and there was distrust. There was often thieving. There were fights. And it was really the first time, other than in inner cities, where we have groups of people from different backgrounds who are thrown together. Now, try to compound that with the Donner Party story where we have emigrants stranded on the eastern side of the Sierra Nevada mountains for 124 days with nothing to eat except shoe leather and blankets and book covers before they descended into cannibalism. So there, there's definitely a lot of angst in, in the book and that will come through to a reader, and once they realize that this was probably the first time that people of different stripes were were traveling together, then they can try to understand the, the gravitas of that situation.
1: Well, it really is hard to imagine what that must have been like, but your, your book does a great job of bringing that to life for readers, I think.
0: Thank you i I do believe my readers will will resonate with this story too as, at this time. I wrote a piece for my local newspaper a couple of weeks ago about how our sheltering in place pales in comparison to the sheltering in place of the Donner party, and it really puts everything into perspective.
1: Mm-hmm. so uh, i the your book answer creek it, it you know it takes place on the Oregon Trail and it got me thinking is can you can tourists today can they take a historic tour of the Oregon Trail Oh
0: definitely my husband and I did the trail two summers ago we started in Omaha Nebraska instead of Independence Missouri because of a family issue that we couldn't get away um as early as we had hoped to. But the story doesn't open until west of Omaha. So we began in Omaha and traveled for a month to Sacramento, California, which basically the Oregon Trail is I-80 that travels across the center of our country. So people who are traveling I-80 on any given day might not even know that they're traveling basically in the mirrored footsteps and wagon ruts of the Oregon Trail. So there are many wonderful museums, Colin, and historical markers and places where that you can get off the beaten trail and actually stand in the original wagon ruts. It's almost akin to the sacred when you're standing there. There was one spot that was especially poignant for me, and that was at the crest of the Continental Divide in southwestern Wyoming near South Pass, 7,000 feet, and I stood in a place that's been untouched by history. There were no roads or buildings or fences or cell towers, nothing but land and sky, and i i turned 360 degrees to see nothing that ada weeks would not have seen and i i've said before in one other interview that in geological time 175 years is not even a blink of an eye. So standing there, I could really picture Ada having just come over the pass, maybe the day or two before, or maybe she was just a day or two behind me. And she might as well have been right next to me, even though she's fictional. Because I, I had the experience of it's relentless wind on this trail let me tell you that and relentless dust and they walked the entire journey people think from western movies that the <clears throat> overland travelers traveled in wagons they did not nobody traveled in wagons unless they were elderly or infirm or had just given birth so these these emigrants walked 2091 miles from independence to sacramento walked every step of the way and if you just think of that as you're whizzing by on i80 again that really really makes you think about time and distance weather forces of nature there's it becomes very real to you when you take that trip so yes you can you can take as long as you want on on the trip from independence to sacramento and if you give yourself enough time and you have the inclination to do so you can really walk in the same footsteps as a lot of our ancestors
1: that just sounds like an amazing experience, and yeah you've got me got me itching to to do it
0: or to go anywhere <laughs> at <Yeah>. this point.
1: <laughs> so tell me about Flora, who is Flora?
0: Well, Flora was to be my next protagonist. I have been working a couple of years mm. on a manuscript about a young Scottish woman who travels to Astoria, Oregon during the height of the fur trading empire and I'm 85,000 words into the manuscript. But during this shelter in place time, I've been convicted to start another story. So I've actually put Flora on a shelf. I will get back to her. I promise. But I'm embarking on a new story set in 1905 rural Arizona, and I'm really on fire about it. So I think we need to put our attentions into the projects that really excite us because our best work will go into those projects products and projects so flora is going to be waiting patiently as i work on the new manuscript
1: i think that's great advice and i'm sure your readers will will look forward to whoever um you know comes out in this your next novel
0: yes i did a facebook takeover the other day and i asked the readers to give me ideas for the protagonist's name and i have many many names to put on a merry-go-round and and decide what name will really land so i don't have a name for her yet I do know where the story begins and I know where the story ends. That's the only thing I know when I embark on a novel, where it starts and where it ends. And I do not plot or do outlines. I really let the story come much more organically to me as if the story is telling itself to me and I am not the one telling the story.
1: That's that's fascinating. Well, I've been speaking with Ashley Sweeney, author of the novels Eliza Waite and Answer Creek. Ashley, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation.
0: I really appreciated it, Colin. Thank you very much for having me.